Alaska. Well, it was about uh, about a hundred years ago. I was a high school speech and drama teacher. <laughs> I taught in the public school system right outside of Oklahoma City. And of course, as a speech and drama teacher, some of my main responsibilities were to put on a few plays throughout the year. And I'll never forget the year our drama department produced the best Christmas pageant ever. Are you familiar with that? I see some hands. It's just a fun little Christmas play. Just to do a quick recap, it's a story of a group of church kids who are in the sanctuary rehearsing the nativity when a group of wild kids from the neighborhood meander into the church and intimidate the church kids into giving them the best roles. And so... Uh, the wild kids get the really cool roles like Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and the church kids are just reduced to singing in the angel choir. Well, we were practicing the play and parts had been given and, and the tryouts and all that and um, the girl in my drama class who had played the lead female role of Mary was named Robin. So I handed her a special doll, and I said, now, Robin, this doll represents Jesus. And so every time you come on stage, you need to have him with you. I know, Miss Schellenberger. Now, listen to me, Robin. Every time you, you have him, you've got to hold him with respect because this doll does represent the Lord. I know. Now, Robin, tune in here. Every time you come on stage, you've got to have him with you. You've got to hold him with respect. You always have to know where Jesus is, okay? And, and don't just flippantly like, drag him onto stage. You know, really watch how you hold him and how you, I know, I know. Well, finally, lines have been memorized, staging and blocking, and all been worked out, and we were backstage ready to present the best Christmas pageant ever. And so, uh, those of you who have been in any kind of production, I want you to flash back with me, okay? You know that moments before curtain is not a real good time to talk to the director because our minds aren't there. Our minds are in the zone. We're trying to remember all the last-minute details, things like, uh, did I remember to tell the spotlight guy this? Did I remember to tell the sound guy that? Uh, what if the angel uh, uh, not only appears to the shepherds, uh, uh, but the cable breaks and she lands on top of them? I mean, just trying to figure out all those last-minute details, and I was no exception. I was not a good communicator right before curtain. But we're backstage, and I'm about to walk out onto the stage and introduce the play to the packed auditorium of students and parents. Well, I didn't know this, but Robin was desperately trying to communicate something very important to me. She was trying to help me understand someone who was not a member of drama class had sneaked backstage and had taken our baby Jesus doll. Well, that was pretty important. I did need to know that. I mean, he was the star of the show. The whole show would revolve around that doll, around Jesus. She's trying to tell on me, but I'm not really getting it. So on my way out to the stage, she pulls me backstage, just panicked. Miss Schellenberger, I need you to help me find Jesus. Well, I got kind of excited about that. I said, Robin, that's wonderful, because she had never shown any interest in the Lord before. I said, now, after the show, we'll go out for a Coke, and I'll help you find Jesus. But right now, three minutes till curtain, so get back there where you belong. And again, I turned to walk out and introduce the show, and she pulled me back again, just frantic. And she said, no, Miss Schellenberger, Jesus is gone. I said, well, Robin, he's coming back. 
Just a matter of time. Now, uh, after the show, we'll go out for a Coke. I'll help you find Jesus. We'll talk about the second coming, the rapture, the whole bit. But right now, two and a half minutes before curtain, so get back there where you belong. And again, I turned to walk out and introduce the show to the parents and the students in the auditorium. She pulled me back again, just frantic. No, Michelle Murder, Jesus was stolen. I said, that was just a rumor. <laughs> Those chief priests didn't want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So they started a rumor that the disciples stole the body. Nobody stole him. He was out of that grave in his own power. Now, after the show, we'll go out for a Coke. And we'll talk about the resurrection and the ascension. We'll talk. We'll just get it all down. But, but right now, two minutes till curtain. So get back there where you belong. And again, I'm walking out to, enter the show, to introduce the show. And she pulls me back and shakes me ever so slightly and says, No, our baby Jesus is gone. There is no prop. We have no doll. Well, now the panic switched to me. <laughs> and I shook Robin ever not so slightly and said, well, where is he? You were supposed to know where Jesus is at every moment. I mean, what kind of mother loses their own son? Though the real mother of Jesus did lose him for a few. But that's beside the point. I know it. And the last time I checked, Miss Schellenberger, he was next to the, the pile of hay and he was in the manger. But somebody has taken him as a prank. And I'm thinking, oh, a prank. Couldn't they simply have short-sheeted the shepherd's cots? <laughs> Did they need to mess with the star of the show? So with one minute left, I gathered that group of high school students backstage and I issued the order... Fine, Jesus! I have never seen a group of high school students search so desperately for Jesus. They gave it all they had. They searched everywhere. They searched high. They searched low. And do you know, it was in that seeking, in that searching, that really made a difference in the outcome of our entire production. Because you see, suddenly we were no longer 30 some odd students walking out for our moment in the spotlight and our few lines. Suddenly we, we had been transformed into a united body, a united cast for one singular purpose. Find Jesus. The show must go on. And it made a difference in the entire outcome of our production. Well, it's funny how some things can really make a difference. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read about an amazing difference. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I think we're going to put it up on the screen here for you. Here we go. When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and could see that they were obviously uneducated non-professionals, they were amazed and realized what being with Jesus had done for them. When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and could see that they were obviously uneducated non-professionals, they were amazed and realized what being with Jesus had done for them. Now, maybe you know the story. Peter and, and John were on their way to the temple to worship and praise God. And on their way, they see a lame man sitting on the steps with a tin cup begging for money because that's how handicapped people could earn a living in those days. It's the only way. And when, when they saw two people coming, they think, oh, good, good, I'll get more than, I'll, I'll get more than just one. But Peter says the, uh, the obvious response that you've heard a long time, silver and gold have I none, but what I have... Give I thee. 
And we serve Jesus, the King of Kings. He can forgive your sins. He can also do a miracle if it's his will and cause you to walk again. Would you like to know? Yes. And so his sins were forgiven. And God went the extra mile and he began to walk. And scripture tells us he began leaping and shouting and screaming throughout the temple courtyards. Now before we make our way inside of the building where the council was meeting, the council, who's the council? It's the Sanhedrin court, kind of a religious supreme court of the day. Before we make our way into there, let's just take a couple of steps back. Yes, the council noticed that Peter and John had been with Jesus, as scripture says. They, they realized, hey, they're not professional, they're uneducated. Wow, being with Jesus has really made a difference here. But it wasn't just being with Jesus that made a difference. Peter and John had been with Jesus. Oh, they'd been with Jesus for three years. You know that. And they'd seen all the miracles firsthand. I mean, can you imagine? Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man starts walking. Can you imagine a blind man's reaction when he sees his face for the first time in the reflection of the water? I mean, they had seen all of the miracles. They had heard all the sermons. They were this close to Jesus. I mean, they were just, they'd seen it all and heard it all. But it wasn't just being with Jesus that made a difference. You see, when Peter and John were with Jesus, yes, they were Christians, though that term hadn't been invented yet. They were followers. They were believers. Yes, they had accepted forgiveness for their sins and had placed their faith in him. But yet, they blew it a lot. I mean, one time they, they crossed the lake and they realized, ah, we forgot to bring bread. And another time, they mistakenly blocked parents from bringing their youngsters to Jesus. What a big mistake that was. Because, oh, how Jesus loves those kids. I mean, they were just, you know, constantly, it seems like, blowing it. And then, and then Jesus says to Peter, on you will I build my church. You're going to be the rock, Peter. And then just a few lines later in Scripture, Jesus says, Peter, you sound just like Satan. Get behind me. I mean, you know, and, and then when Jesus specifically said, I need you to stay awake and I need you to watch and to pray, what happened? They all fell asleep. And Jesus came back and said, okay, now this time I'm giving you a second chance. Stay awake. I need you to pray with me. The hour is late. And again, they fell asleep. Well, they just kept blowing it. They, Peter tried to walk on water and he did great. And then he fell and then he sank and he needed something more. He needed a greater power that he didn't have. Those disciples needed greater wisdom and discernment and power, and they just didn't have it. So they just kept failing and failing and failing. But let's see, what was it that Jesus said? Oh, yes, he said, wait for me. Where? That upper room. Why? What would happen? The Holy Spirit, he said, will come upon you in power, and he will fill you with power and with boldness. And in that supernatural power, you'll be able to spread the gospel to the ends of the, of the known earth. Wow! And just as Jesus said it would happen, it happened. There they were in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and now these disciples are no longer weak and frightened and timid and insecure. Now, these disciples are filled with boldness and with power, and they are actually duplicating the miracles of the Master. What? Yes, and that's why Peter's in trouble this morning. Lame man, get up and walk. And he did, and he's shouting and just rejoicing, and we would too, all through the temple courtyards. And now we're back to where we started. The news has leaked into the Sanhedrin council, and boy, are they angry. 
Ah, it's got to be those disciples again. Ugh, how many times have we told them, no more talking about Jesus, okay? This little Christianity thing is never really going to get up off the ground, okay? Ixnay on the Jesus A. Hey, it's not, just don't do that. Don't talk about him anymore. He's dead. It's over. It's gone. What are we going to do this time? Okay, we've, we've, we've beat them before, we, we've tortured them before, we, we've warned them before. We, 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 what, do, what do we do this time? This time, should we, uh, should we shackle them? Uh, should we starve them a few days? Uh, this time, uh, should we bring out the cat of nine tails? Oh, I don't know, just bring them in one more time and we'll deal with them. But this time, as Peter and John were brought before the council, this time, they weren't nervously shifting their weight from side to side. They weren't nervously darting their eyes and they weren't trying to find the right word to. To, uh, well, you know, uh, say this time, as they stood before the Sanhedrin council, they stood with boldness. They stood with a supernatural power. They stood with the Holy Spirit within them, working through them. And this time, their eyes were locked directly into the eyes of the Sanhedrin council. And as they began speaking, the council began to argue among themselves, these are not the same two guys we've hauled in before. Of course they are. Of course they are. Look, their teeth are still crooked. No, I'm telling you, they're not the same. Yes, they are. They smell like fish. No, 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 no. They're not the same two guys. Of course they are. They've got dirt underneath their fingernails. No, I'm telling you, there's something different. These aren't the same two guys. Of course they are. They haven't been to college. They're uneducated. They, they're not professionals. They don't have a fancy degree on their office wall. They don't have an office wall. They don't have a wall. <laughs> Peter and John weren't the same two guys, but they were the same two guys. But instead of being weak, intimidated, frightened, Insecure disciples, they had been transformed into a united, godly band of flaming evangelists because that's the difference the Holy Spirit can make in our lives. You see, the Sanhedrin Council was wrong. Peter and John had been to school. They'd been to the Jesus School of Life. Jesus was the only teacher. He taught a three-year-round course of curriculum, a whole lot of evangelism, a dash of creativity, a whole lot of loving your fellow man, a little slice of, of psychology and philosophy. But because Peter and John had been to the Jesus school of life, they were in the process of becoming one with him. And that's what sanctification is. Well, wow, how, how much does it cost to go to the Jesus school of life? Well, the tuition is always high, always high in sanctification. The tuition is everything. It will cost you everything to become sanctified and to follow Jesus and to have the Holy Spirit infuse every area of your life with his power. Sanctification, 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 multi-syllable word. Maybe you've heard that word tossed around a lot. Could we just unpack it and make it very simple to understand this morning? Sanctification, what really is sanctification? Well, let's just put it all out. In the Church of the Nazarene, we believe in two acts of grace. Now, I want to make sure my Oklahoma City accent is not getting in the way. I'm not saying acts of grace, A-X. Acts, A-C-T-S. We believe in two acts of grace. And the first act might be something that most of you have already experienced. It's salvation. 
So if you've experienced that first act of grace, then at some point, somewhere, you prayed a prayer that may have been similar to this. Dear Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm full of sin. Would you forgive me of my sin? Because I want a relationship with you. And I believe you are who you say you are, the Messiah. You're the Son of God, and I'm placing my faith in you. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive my sins? I want to walk with you. Maybe you prayed a prayer kind of like that. didn't have to be that exact prayer. Maybe you prayed it at an altar in church, or maybe it was at a Christian concert, or maybe it was in your bedroom, or maybe it was behind the, the steering wheel of your car. doesn't matter where. But at some point, you prayed a prayer kind of like that. And when you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, guess what he did? He did that. And he came into your life, and you began a relationship with him. That's probably where most of us are today. If not, you're at the right place at the right time. Because Jesus would love to forgive your sins this morning and enter you into, welcome you into the family of God. It's free. You can't deserve it. Never will. Can't earn it. None of us could. But it's a gift. And he would love to give you that this morning. It's called grace. It's called mercy. Most of you have experienced that, but then, but then here's the catch. Once we start walking with Jesus, and once we start reading our Bible, as we grow in him, and as we mature in him, we realize that he's saying something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And it's a command, not really a suggestion. He says, be ye holy as I am holy. And the more we read the Bible, the more we mature in him, we realize he even goes as far as to say, only the holy will enter the kingdom of God. Well, we love God, and we're in a relationship with him, and so we want to please him, and so we start trying really hard to be holy, but we fail. And so we try again, even harder to be holy, but we fail again, and we try again, and again, okay, this time, I'm really going to be holy. Maybe we become a Christian again, okay, this fourth time I become a Christian, I know I can make it work. No, you can't. It's not even your job to make it work. You weren't wired to make it work. That's God's job to work it in you and through you. Your job is just to give it up, lay it down, walk away. That's your job. And so when we realize that, he's commanding I be holy. I try and I try, but I fail and I fail. I can't win with this. We become pretty frustrated, and that's a battle. And if you haven't experienced that battle yet, you will at some point in your relationship with Christ. And I want you to know you're not alone. The Apostle Paul also experienced that battle, and he outlines it in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. I'll paraphrase phrase. Basically, he's saying, oh, I don't understand myself at all. Because in my mind, I decided, I committed to follow Jesus. He forgave me of my sins, but something else is going on here. There's something else in my lower nature, in my sinful nature, that causes me to still do the things I know God doesn't want me to do. And then Paul says, it seems to be a fact of life. That whenever I decide, okay, I am going to do this because it's God's will. I am going that way. I start out that way, but inevitably, I turn around and I do the things that I know God doesn't want me to do. He says, so I don't get it. I'm a follower. I'm a believer. He's forgiven me of my sins, but my sinful nature is still in charge. My sinful nature is still calling the shots in my life. What a predicament I'm in. Yeah, that is a predicament. Now, if Paul were to have written you that letter and asked you for advice, dear Esther, boy, I'm really frustrated. 
I really want to do God's will and I start out that way, I inevitably turn around, I do the other things. Maybe Esther, maybe I would, maybe most of you would say, okay, well, dear Paul, thank you for sharing, <laughs> but <laughs> you just need to really get serious about your relationship with Paul. And Paul would write back and say, seriously? <laughs> Did you read my letter? <laughs> I mean, I am very serious. Hey, I, I've been shipwrecked for him. I've been stoned. I've been tortured. I've been beaten. I've gone without food. Oh, I'm very serious. I'm dead serious. At some point, I will die for him. In fact, I wrote most of the New Testament. How much more serious can I be? It's not a matter of being serious. There's something else going on. I need something more, and I don't have it. And that's why I'm so frustrated. There's something missing in my relationship with Christ. All of us experience that battle at some point. And when we realize that, guess what? Good news. We don't have to start all over again. You don't have to become a Christian all over again for the 16th time or the 28th time or the second time. You can pray exactly where you are spiritually. You can come and say, okay, Jesus, thank you that I'm already a Christian. I asked you to forgive my sins, and you did. Thank you that we have a relationship. But you're commanding I be holy. You know I've tried. Oh, you know I've tried. And I just can't cut it. Why? It would take some kind of supernatural power for me to be the holy person you're commanding me to be. And Jesus says, and I have that supernatural power. And I would love to release it into every area of your life. And when we realize that, then we say, oh, well, th then yeah, let's do that. And we pray Kind of a prayer of sanctification. It might go something like this. It's not important that you pray word for word. But it might go something like, okay then. That's what I need. That's what I want. And so this morning I'm going to die. It's an act of dying. This morning, I'm, figuratively speaking, I'm writing my own death certificate here in Lincoln, Nebraska. At Cross Point Church of the Nazarene. On February 22nd. Is it? I think it's the third. Wow. On February 23rd, 2020, I, Susie Schellenberger, die. I die to me. I die to my rights. I die to my, my future. I don't even know what it is, but I've died to it. And I die to my relationships. I die to my checking account. What little there is. I die of, of, of my hopes and my dreams. I die of me first. I die of my title, my status, my position. Jesus I just died all of that. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. You live in me, through me, instead of me. And so when we pray a prayer of sanctification, okay, I'm dying. I'm dying. W would you release your Holy Spirit's power within every area of my life? And would you perfect my heart when we pray that? Oh, guess what? He does. Oh, he perfects our heart. What does that mean? Uh, perfect my heart. It means now. Our greatest desire is just to love him and to serve him, to live in the center of his will. That's our, that becomes our greatest desire. Okay, but does that mean I'll be perfect? Hmm. Ooh. Well, I didn't say that, but I'm glad you asked it. Usually when we think of the word perfect, we equate it in terms of behavior. In this context, we're not talking about behavior. We're talking about completion. God wants to perfect your heart. In other words, he wants it, it's wholeness. He wants to bring you in and make you part of him. Right now, if you're a Christian, you're close to him, but you're not part of him. Right now, if you're a Christian, you've been saved from the penalty of sin, but not yet from the power of sin.
And when you become sanctified, then God frees you from the bondage of sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in bondage to sin. But you learn to live in spiritual victory. So when God perfects your heart, that's what we mean. He brings you into wholeness with Him. Into completion with Him. Okay, but you did use the word perfect, Susie. So now you've got my mind reeling. Does that mean that I'll never sin again? I'm glad you asked that. I guess now we need to stop listening to Susie and go to Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John says, my dear little children, I'm writing these things to you so you will not continue to live in sin. Oh. John wouldn't have said that if it were not possible. With the Holy Spirit's power infusing every area of our lives, we can live above sin. We'll still be tempted, but when we're tempted, we can look at temptation, not in our own strength, but with the supernatural strength within us, say, okay, that's sin, and I'm going to turn around and walk the opposite direction. It's not sin to be tempted, it's sin to give in. Okay, that's sin. Um, I'm going to, not in my power, but in this stronger power within me, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to walk the opposite direction. No longer do you have to be controlled with your sinful nature when the Holy Spirit is really in control. Okay, Susie, but okay, I think I hear you saying, if I pray a prayer of sanctification, I will no longer be in bondage to my sinful nature. Yes, that's right. But you did mention that word perfect. So this means I'll never sin again. I mean, you just said, I can live above sin. Yes, that's what I said, but we're still human. God's not going to transform your humanness until you get to heaven. And he's not going to treat you like a puppet and control your every move. So you still have free will. And so at any time, you could say, I'm going to choose to sin. Yeah, you could say that. Well, wait a minute. I thought we just always kind of had to sin in word, thought, and deed. It's just like breathing. We can't help it. We just sin all the time, every day, just like breathing. Well, we need to now look at your definition of sin. In the Church of the Nazarene, we've, we define sin as a willful act of rebellious disobedience against the known word of God, the known the known law of God. So if God says, Susie, don't do that. And I say, okay, I know you're telling me not to. But I'm going to do it anyway. Then I've sinned. But if you wake up tomorrow morning with a migraine. You're a little short with somebody. You're not sinning. And you won't go to hell because you're a little bit snappy with somebody. That, that might be a weak area in your life. You need to ask God to help you with that. And he would be glad to. But that's not sin. Sin is a willful, defiant, rebellious, disobedient act against what you know God is telling you to do or to not do. Okay, okay, I think I understand that, but I know God is saying, do this. And I'm saying, I may just say, I mean, I know me, Susie, and you don't. And I'm afraid if I pray a prayer of sanctification this morning, probably by next week, I'm already going to choose to go ahead and disobey what he's telling me to do. If God says, do it, I might just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I would sin. So, so then what? See, that's why I'm not going to pray a prayer like that. And then what? Because then I'd have to start all over and become a Christian all over again? No. Let me give you the rest of 1 John 2, chapter 1. I didn't give you all of it. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear little children, I'm writing these things to you so you will not continue to live in sin. But, John says, if one among you does sin, there is always one to whom you can go for forgiveness. His name is Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you for providing a way out. Thank you for being my advocate. Thank you for being my defender. I don't want to sin, but my human nature might just take over and someday I might just say, I'm going to choose to go. I don't have to, but I just might because I'm still human. There's always one to whom you can go. But here's the bottom line. When I choose to sin, I can't go to God and say, sorry about that. Sorry about that. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm already kind of halfway making plans to do that again next week. That's not true repentance. The word repent in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written means to turn around and walk the opposite direction. Walk completely away from. So if I choose to sin, then I can come back to him and he will forgive me in true repentance. Dear God, I'm so sorry. I willfully, defiantly disobeyed you. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I broke your heart. Jesus, in my mind, I'm not making plans to ever go down that pathway again. In fact, to help keep me from going down that pathway, I'm going to set up some bridges, some boundaries, some fences. I'm going to establish some accountability in my life. Since I'm a female, I'll find another female who's spiritually solid. And I'm going to ask her to ask me questions about these weak areas in my life. If I were a man, then I'd find a male who's spiritually solid to help keep me accountable. I'm, I may need to call my friend every day and say, oh, I'm weak. I'm tempted. Or she may need to call me every other day. Okay, well, you know what's going on let's just say that um uh i'm I, i'm a shoplifter let's just say that okay and uh i've come to your church and i've seen some pretty cool things that i like here i've always wanted to play the guitar and i see two of them back there and i i just think the drums are awesome i don't know how but i'm going to get those on the plane with me this afternoon and there are a few other things that i've seen out in your foyer i'm going to take with me but i've made myself a cannibal to laura and so laura's going to call me tonight and say hey did you lift anything if I know she's going to be calling me, I'm a lot less likely to take stuff. And you guys are going, Pastor Doug, don't ever bring her back. Because when she comes, she cleans out our church. <laughs> now, I'm just making that up. I really, I'm not going to steal anything from your church. Well, maybe not. No, I'm kidding. I won't. <laughs> but that accountability helps keep us from going down that road. Fasten your seatbelts really quickly. I want, to take you on a, I want to take you on a trip, okay? We're going to pick up the pace here. Grab your passports. We're going back decades in time, and we're traveling to Asia, specifically Indonesia. True story. The book is not in print anymore. I think you might still be able to get it off of Amazon. It's called Like a Mighty Wind. It tells the story of a pastor who, who was uh, preaching just in the jungles. I mean, they just lived in I mean, no electricity, no modern conveniences, no sewage, nothing like that. And they were just living in huts. Again, I'm taking you decades back in history. And, uh, you know, now Indonesia is predominantly a Muslim 
country, but back then Christianity was, was you know, kind of starting to get out, and this, this pastor living in this jungle village just had such a burden for his villagers, for, for the people in his villagers. A few thousand people lived in that village, and, and he pastored this little hut church. Maybe a hundred people would crowd into that little hut church. No benches or seats, nothing like that. They'd just sit on the dirt floor, and one splintery little wooden bench at the front to symbolize the altar. Well, one morning after the service, he said, would you just stay with me after the service is over because I want to share my heart with you. And so after the service, he said, okay, here it is. I have such a burden for our village, and I want so desperately for our people to come to know the Lord. Would you meet with me every Friday night right here so we could just pray for our village? Uh, yes, we will, Pastor. And so Friday night showed up, and they just began to pray and pray that God would send revival to their village. Oh, they prayed their hearts out. A few weeks passed, and the pastor just kind of slightly changed the prayer. Dear God, we know we can't have revival in our village until we have revival in our church. So would you send revival to our church? And they began to pray with him fervently, and maybe another month or two passed. He changed his prayer slightly. Oh, dear God, I know. We can't have revival in our church until I have revival in me. And so would you give me revival? And they began to echo that prayer. Yes, you give me revival. And they prayed and they prayed. Another couple of months went by. The pastor slightly changed the prayer again. Oh, dear God. Whatever it takes, you do in me whatever you need to do to bring me into radical obedience to your lordship. The people began to echo that prayer. Oh, yes, whatever it takes. I want to live in radical obedience to your lordship. The Holy Spirit just came upon them in fullness. And they began to come to that little splintery bench that was the altar and just gave everything. The little deeds to their little plots of land. The little titles to their grass huts. Their relationships. Their, the little bit of money they had. They just began to give everything to God. Well, the people out in the village realized that little hut church was ablaze in flames. What was wrong? Were the people already dead? Could they not get out? Were they trapped? And so men from the village rushed to that little hut church with big buckets of water. But the closer they got, the slower they walked. Not a good strategy to putting out a fire. One man put the bucket down and peered inside and came back out. His eyes were as white as saucers. Couldn't even say anything. Another man peered in and came back out. And he said, this is not a natural physical fire. I've never seen anything like this before. 2,000 people crowded in and out and in and out of that little hut church that night and gave their lives to Jesus. Why? What was going on? Just 100 people, that's all. Were so serious about their relationship with Christ and gave it all and prayed what I would say a dangerous prayer, doing me whatever that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they appeared to be as if on flames of fire. Wow, is it going to happen that way to me if I come forward and pray a prayer of sanctification this morning? No, it won't. Well, God can do whatever he wants, but we don't need signs and wonders. And if that's where our focus is, then we're really off. Because our focus should be just sheer obedience. We don't need to look like we're on a flame of fire. Well, it was a wise pastor and he took the next three years and discipled and matured those new 2,000 converts. And then he sent them out in little cell groups all across the country of Indonesia. And a revival just swept through the whole country. Now remember, that was decades ago. Now we're up to the present. And I know, as you do, that Muslims dominate that country. But did you know, every single day... There are people being led to the Lord. And I believe it's because of those fires of revival 
that started decades ago, those fires are still burning. I just wonder what would happen if you too dared to pray a dangerous prayer, dear God, whatever, whatever, blank slate. I want to live in radical obedience to your lordship. What would happen? Well, you'd never be the same. That's what would happen. You'd never be the same. And if you are that serious, then God might respond with a question. He might say, really, whatever? Okay, well, would you pick up the cross and follow me? Oh, hmm, the cross. Okay, well, you know, I'm familiar with the cross. I know it's an instrument of death. I know it symbolizes sacrifice. Uh, uh, it, yeah, it, it's blood. That's what it is. Yes. Would you be willing to bleed and die and sacrifice for me? Yes. Yes, Jesus, whatever. He may respond with another question. He may say, oh, okay, well, good then. Would you be, would you be fitted with my yoke? The yoke? Not quite so familiar with the yoke, but it is an essential ingredient in our relationship with Christ. We know that a yoke is, well, it's a, it's a symbol of service. It represents sweat. Yes, Jesus, at any point, I would submit to your will in your yoke and follow you. So you see, if we're really serious about our relationship with Christ, then at any point as we're walking with him, we will be willing to sweat or to bleed, to sacrifice or to toil. To die or to serve. Matthew eleven twenty eight. I, I like I like to picture it. Where where were they? Where was where was Jesus speaking when he said to that group of people, "Hey hey, uh, your burden is heavy, but my yoke is light. So come here, all of you that have such heavy burdens, come come here." Where, where was he? Maybe they were on a grassy hillside. Maybe the sun was kind of in their eyes. Jesus was saying, hey, all of you, all of you, you toil so hard. Sometimes it's hard for you to even put one foot in front of the other because some of you are just emotionally drained. Some of you have family problems. Some of you are angry, angry because of something that happened to your family or at work. Some of you have lost someone close to you. Hey, all those of you who are hurting so deeply and who are struggling so much, come here. Come here. Because though your burden is so heavy, guess what? My yoke is easy. I want to fit you with my yoke. Now, there was a legend about Jesus. The legend said in, in his day, in his father's carpenter shop, he made a perfect yoke. And that men would make day-long journeys. They would bring their animals with them just to have Jesus make the yoke for their animals. I guess it's important that a yoke fit perfectly. If it's not, it's, it's too heavy and it, it grinds and rubs raw the necks of the animals. And you can actually put a very light load on their backs, but it seems extremely heavy because the balance is out of proportion. And if, if the, the, the yoke is too big, the animals can't get a good grasp, and, and it's hard to maneuver, and it's frustrating. And again, you can put a light load on their backs, but it seems extremely heavy because everything's out of whack. But Jesus would made a, make a custom yoke. When a yoke fits perfectly, it feels right. And you can actually put a very heavy load on the backs and it seems extremely light because everything is in exact proportion as it should be. I just want you to know that thus far in your lifetime, Jesus has been working on a custom-made yoke just for you. It won't fit the person next to you. 
It won't fit anyone else. But figuratively speaking, his yokes, custom made for you, are lined up all along this altar this morning with your name engraved in them. Would you submit to his yoke, his way, his plan? Would you yield to his holy authority, not my way anymore, not my will anymore? Susie, he's already forgiven my sins. Great! Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, there's more than simply being a Christian. On Paul's missionary journeys in Africa, he'd pull up to a port in his ship and he would get out and, and the islanders would greet him and the new believers would rush up to Paul and they'd say, Paul, we've experienced forgiveness for our sins. And usually the first thing Paul would say is, that's great, but what do you know about the Holy Spirit? Why? Why would he say that? Because he wanted them to know, oh, there's so much more. I'm so glad that you've experienced forgiveness for your sins, but there's so much more. Be ye holy as I am holy. Only the holy shall enter the kingdom of God. You don't serve a God of frustration. No way would he say, be holy. Hey, I'll check up with you about a year ago, about a year from now, and see how you're doing. No. He says, be ye holy. And here, let me give you everything you need. To become all that I command you to be. Will you stand please? I want to ask you a couple of personal questions. So would you mind just bowing your head and closing your eyes? We believe in the church of the Nazarene there are two acts of grace. The first is salvation and the second is sanctification. What we've just talked about. This sanctification thing isn't something you'll just naturally grow into. Well, the longer I walk with Jesus, I'll just become holy. No, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. It takes a commitment. And then it takes a, a, after that commitment, then it's a process. But it starts with that second act of grace, that commitment. So with nobody looking around, the first act is salvation. I wonder, is there anybody here who would raise his or her hand with nobody looking around and say, Susie, um, I'm raising my hand because I have not experienced yet the first act of grace, salvation. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. He has not forgiven my sins. I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to talk to you or embarrass you. I want to pray for you from a distance, just silently. I want to be praying for you. So would you raise your hand if that's you? If that's you, raise it high so I can see. Okay, thanks. Anybody else? Okay, I saw one. Anybody else? Okay, then let me tell you that one. It's a free gift, and you can have it this morning. And in a few minutes, you can come forward, and you can silently say, Dear Jesus, I want a relationship with you. Would you come into my life and forgive my sins? I'm placing my trust in you. And if you'll do that, he will forgive your sins. It is that simple. Let me ask you another question. How many this morning would say, Susie, I do have a relationship with Jesus. He has forgiven my sins. Would you just raise your hand? Just a little testimony. Yeah. Good, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So many of you, hands down. Now, some of you didn't raise your hand either way. Maybe you don't know. And that could be a red flag. Maybe you need to make for sure. And you can do that this morning in a few moments. Let me ask you one final question. How many would say this morning, Susie, yes, I'm a Christian. God has forgiven my sins. But I'm not really living in that kind of power. But I want to. Would you just lift up your hands? Yeah. That's what's been missing from my relationship with Christ. You could put your hands down. Couldn't really put my finger on it. But now I know 
Now I know. And you know what? If there's more to my relationship with Christ than I have, well then, Susie, I want it. I really want it. But I don't, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't have a clue about how to get that. I don't know how to get what you've talked about this morning. Good news. I'm so happy it's not rocket science or this simple-minded Oklahoma City girl would have never gotten it. It all boils down to three words. I surrender all. And if you'll do that, guess what? God will do all the rest. And so this morning, if, if you raised your hand saying, Oh, that's what I need. Yes. I'm going to ask you right now to leave your seat. God will give you the strength to do that. Just to leave your seat and make your way down here to the altar. Would you do that? Let's come and spend some time with Jesus. And I'm going to pray with each person who comes forward. Not individually, but as a group prayer. Because I want to make sure we all get through. That we're all on the same page. So would you come now? Even as I'm talking, before we start the song, I Surrender All. Would you go ahead and come now? Several hands. This whole altar should be filled by now. And when the altar is filled, would you go ahead and just sit on the front row? Or stand between the altars. You can kneel at the altar. Altar, you can stand at the altar. You can kneel or sit on these, these steps right by the platform. Let's just crowd in between the altars and in the aisles. Everybody who says, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I need. Didn't even realize it until this morning. But now I know that's what I've been missing. Would you go ahead and start praying silently? And then after we sing this song, I'll pray a guided prayer with all of you who have come. But let's sing together. And if you want to come and get in on this, then you come as we sing, I surrender all. Come on. All to Jesus. I 